One evening in 1787, a young English member of Parliament poured over papers by candlelit in his home beside the Houses of Parliament, William Wilberforce, and he had been asked to propose the abolition of the slave trade, although almost all Englishmen thought the slave trade was necessary, if nasty, and that economic ruin would follow it if it stopped. Only a few people thought that the slave trade was wrong or evil. And so at the age of 28, he started a campaign against the slave trade, which at the time was legal and a big business worth 80% of the country's foreign income. He gathered evidence and allies, gave impassioned four-hour speeches, and presented a bill to Parliament. And he would write, So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, in modern terms, habits, attitudes, and morals. His first bill was presented to Parliament, and it failed by a two-to-one margin, and he felt deflated. Most of us would have quit. Nothing probably would have come of it. But Wilberforce tried again the next year and failed. And so he tried again the next year and failed. And he tried again the next year and failed. And he tried again, well, you get the picture. He was faithful to what God had called him to. He was constantly vilified, twice ambushed, physically assaulted. A friend once wrote wrote to him, I shall expect to read of your carbonadoed by West Indian planters. That means boiled like a fish. Barbecued by African merchants and eaten by Guinea captains. But do not be daunted. I will write your epitaph. But Wilberforce kept persevering, displaying courage and loyalty to those who were trapped in this wicked practice in pursuit to, to abolish such an evil operation for financial gain. And friends, after 20 years of effort, he tried yet again, and this time he succeeded. The slave trade was finally abolished, and so he turned to the practice of slavery itself, and after 26 more years, it too was abolished throughout the British Empire. This was 1833, three decades before it was outlawed in the U.S. It only took Wilberforce 46 years. Yeah, you heard me right. 46 years, and you might think, No one has enough time for that. And you're missing the point of faithfulness. The guy changed the fabric of his country. He took on big business, the status quo, the law, and he won. And it resulted of 800,000 people being freed from a lifetime of slavery. And it only took him 46 years. It was worth it. Faithfulness, in a word, that would describe William Wilberforce's resolve for his life's great work. He loved the Lord, and he served the Lord, and God used him mightily in politics to overturn one of the greatest injustices in Great Britain's history. But it was Wilberforce's faithfulness to the Lord, then ultimately to the task that we remember most. He was a faithful, spirit-filled Christian. To be faithful means to be loyal to have courage, to be utterly reliable and true to your word. It means you can be counted on. 
And we've been making our way through the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. And we've seen how each one of these fruit really depend on the other to exist and, and to flourish in the Christian life. You can't be faithful unless you love. And you can't love unless you have peace and so on. And so I'll be honest with you this morning. I struggled to, to find the right passage to share about the topic of faithfulness. Not because there isn't anything in the Bible. Uh, there's lots to talk about faithfulness. But I struggled because the word faithfulness in the New Testament is translated from the same Greek word for faith. Pistis. And there's a biblical faith that trusts in God for salvation, for redemption, uh, from wickedness and, and slavery to sin. Then there's faithfulness that finds its roots in biblical faith, but displays itself in the life of the believer. Faithfulness is the outworking of faith. Having faith in God results in living a faithful life, and it can only happen through the work of the Spirit in our lives. That's why it's listed in the, in the fruit of the Spirit. What you believe about God will affect how you live your life. Faith is the way to life, and faith is the way to live your life. Faithfulness, loyalty, reliability, these are best found in the one who has submitted their life to God. And so we will look at just a few verses from Hebrews 11. There's an example after example in this chapter of Christians living out their faith, displaying faithfulness. But I, I want to focus on, on just one, Noah. And so if you haven't already, turn with me to Rome, Hebrews 11 and follow with me as I read Hebrews 11, 1 through 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let me pause. Faith concerns itself with the future. Faith concerns unseen spiritual realities, things that are in God's sight, though unseen to us. By faith, we possess things that are hoped for, and faith is the way in which we hold them. And by faith, they are made real to our experience. And now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the, things, and the conviction of things not seen. And then he says in verse 2, For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That is what faith is. Faith is living in a hope that is so real it gives absolute assurance. The promises given to the Old Testament saints were so real to them because they believed God that they based their lives on those promises. Faith isn't, isn't believing in God. Faith is believing God. And then he says in verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is not simply one way to please God. It is the only way to please God. There's no divine commendation for anyone who does, 
good, good by the world's standard without placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And by faith, verse 7, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. James writes for us in the second chapter of his epistle, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. True faith for the Christian will always have actions to support its claim. If you remember earlier in that epistle, James criticizes the one who says he has faith but doesn't do a thing to help others who are in need. And he's teaching us that in order for our faith to be true, it must be visible, seen in in good deeds towards others. If you really believe in God, there will eventually be evidence in the way in which you live, how you talk, and what you do with your life. And the scriptures teach us clearly that you are only saved by faith. And then when you are saved, good works follow. John Calvin rightly has said, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. And I've been telling you that these fruit of the Spirit tie together. We looked at goodness last week and everywhere you turn, the outworking of faithfulness, it's best seen in goodness towards others. The Apostle Paul, who was a stalwart of proclaimer of the justification by faith alone, also taught that a life of good works is to be seen by those that are justified. He says in 1 Timothy 6.18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So for all the believers that are listed in Hebrews 11, their genuine faith is made known by something they did, how they lived. Faith cannot be seen except in the things that it does. And Noah was a man of true faith, and his faith was shown in faithfulness to the commands of God. Now, I want to look for a moment at Genesis 6-9 about the calling of Noah. If you turn there, Genesis 6-9. And it says... These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He was a righteous man. But I thought Paul told us in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. And yet here in Genesis 6.9, Noah is called righteous. I believe the context can help us resolve the issue because Noah wasn't perfect, His righteousness and blamelessness is in comparison to the people that filled the earth. His his conduct demonstrated a practical righteousness which can be characterized as blameless. And the word blameless here refers to what is complete and whole. This description of Noah doesn't suggest that he is sinless. Rather, it shows us that his life reflects a wholeness of character in which he professes to believe and what, how he actually lives his life. Noah was blameless in a morally corrupt world. And there's an interesting word when we look at the beginning of the verse. There, there are generations of Noah. The, the word generations means to go in a circle, the, the circle of his life. It suggests that Noah found a new center of gravity for his life. 
His, his center wasn't the world, it was God. As a planet goes in circles around the sun, so Noah's life revolved around God. And without that great central attraction, the natural tendency, the normal drives of his life would have taken him off into the outer darkness of the, the wicked age in which he lived. And how did Noah's life revolve around God? It says, Noah walked with God. The current world that Noah, the current world system that Noah lived in, failed to attract him. He found a greater attraction to God, and his life revolved around him. What does it mean to walk with God? I want to try to give you an illustration. For the last four Sundays, ESPN has been releasing two hours each week of a documentary of a basketball career of Michael Jordan. I grew up watching and loving lots of basketball, but I was a Detroit fan. Loving Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, even Bill Lambeer. So we didn't much appreciate Jordan, but I respected him. And tonight is the last two installments of that series. And if, you're, if you watched any of it, you're, you're kind of walking with Jordan from afar through his career. You, you see what he saw. You, you experience in some way what he experienced. He's a great basketball player. Not a very good human, but a fantastic athlete. And that series has been an opportunity to learn about Jordan but it pales in comparison to truly walking with him. If you were to walk with, with Michael Jordan, you, you would learn more of what makes him tick, how, how he lives, how he thinks. You might not like what you find, though. When you walk with God, you learn about God firsthand. Not from a TV. You, you, you learn what makes him happy, what brings him grief. When you walk with God, you factor him into your everyday life and your decision-making and your thoughts and your fears and your joys. He's there with you as you live. You spend time praying and talking with him throughout the day. The Bible says that Noah walked with God. He knew him. He trusted him. So when God asked him to build an ark, he faithfully obeys And the only way to live faithfully in this world is to walk with God. No other way to do it. You learn that God is sufficient for all things when you walk with him. Is God, as you know him today, really sufficient, not merely for some, but for all of your needs? The answer to that question obviously depends on what you think about God and how close your walk with him is. Your faithfulness in this life largely depends on where you place your faith. What would change in your life if you began walking with God? There are some of you right now logged on to watch the service that have been a a Christian for a long time, but you don't know what it means to walk with God. You know of him, but you don't. Don't truly know him. What would change if you begin to walk with him? Would you finally begin to get to know him? What, what makes God tick? Finding out what he loves, what he hates. J.C. Ryle says, In walking with God, a man will go just as far as he believes and no further. His life will always be proportioned to his faith. 
His peace, his patience, his courage, his zeal, his works, all will be according to his faith. So friend, if you're not walking with God, you won't go very far. Well, coming back to Hebrews eleven seven, about Noah, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's faith in God was astonishing. Have you, have you considered it? It was astonishing because of his absolute trust in God and because of his unhesitating and persistent obedience for 120 years and the undertaking of that, of that, from our frail human perspective, looked really absurd and, and impossible. The events of, of a worldwide flood was unseen. And he needed to lean on God, live in faith. And when God tells Noah that he's going to destroy the world because of its wickedness and instructs him to, to build an ark, Noah drops everything to begin the work. Noah most likely lived in Mesopotamia between the, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, a long way from any ocean. So can you imagine how absurd this message from God must have sounded like to Noah? And it would have been so strange, incredibly demanding, embarrassing even, overwhelming. And we would have done anything we could have to, to get out of doing it. We would have thought of a million excuses and why we were not the right ones to do the task, right? And trying to convince God he's got the wrong guy. But Noah, who didn't have the completed Bible, like us, doesn't fight or make excuses. He doesn't question God. He obeys him faithfully. Noah believed there would be a flood. No other word. No other evidence. He believed it and he obeyed. And Noah persevered faithfully for over 100 years to a single command from God. Biblical faith doesn't question to get out of obedience. but it perseveres. Noah's faithfulness stands supreme, if for nothing else than the sheer magnitude of the project and the time it took to complete it. But also his faith is astounding simply because of the warning that God is giving. He had probably never seen anything like a flood that God had promised was coming, but he responds to God in faith and assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. And faithfully, Noah prepares the ark. He could lean on nothing else except for God's word to him. Now, I want to live faithfully like Noah. Hebrews says that Noah constructed the ark out of reverent fear. He knew who God was and lived in light of what he knew. Reverent fear is the only appropriate response to the justice of God. And he's wonderfully gracious, but that grace is only truly known against the dark backdrop of his justice and wrath against sin. And he says, by this he condemned the world. He became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So how, how, did, how did Noah condemn the world? It's not like Noah sat in official capacity to judge the world. Rather, whenever an individual li lives in obedience to God, again, against the morality of the world, that individual then condemns the rest of the world in its unrighteousness. It says, by his faith, 
he condemned the world. Think, think of it this way. What happens when you put a light in a dark room? The light stands out from the darkness, and what was previously been unseen is now revealed for what it truly is. And often we don't understand how dark our environment has become until someone shines a light in it. That was true for William Wilberforce in the 1800s with shining the light in the darkness of racism and slavery and sin, and it's true in the life of Noah. And the faithful obedience of a righteous man or woman reveals and condemns the disobedience of the world. And God tells Noah, in a sense, Noah, I want you to build an ocean liner in the middle of Kansas. And he builds it for years and years and decades, and the flood doesn't come. And I'm sure people are confused on what he was doing. So what? Noah does it anyway. And in it, he stands against the world. He doesn't care what the world thinks, and in the end, his work is vindicated. And Wilberforce faithfully followed God for years, decades, trying to build into the world a right way of thinking about humans. People mocked him and tried to destroy him, but in the end, his work was vindicated. And Noah's faith was genuine and was proved by his faithfulness to God's word. And in God's economy, trust and obedience are inseparable. How are you doing? Is your faithfulness condemning the world? Are you even trying? Second Peter 2.5 says that Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. I'm sure he would have explained his actions to those surrounding him. He would have warned those people looking at him at the impending judgment that was coming. And we also are to teach and explain the life that we lead. We might be mocked, we might be laughed at, but the rejection of our message means that those we live around is, are condemned for their unbelief. C.H. Spurgeon said, He who does not believe God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through atoning blood. Many people are happy to hear about God's gracious promises but want to hear nothing about of his judgment. Spurgeon went on to say, I charge you who profess the Lord not to be unbelieving with regard to the terrible threatenings of God to the ungodly. Believe the threat even though it should chill your blood. Believe though nature shrinks from the overwhelming doom. For if you do not believe, disbelieving God at one point will drive you to disbelieve God upon the other points of revealed truth. Noah's witness condemned the world. He preached the gospel. How are we faithfully living in this world? Well, the last phrase here of Hebrews 11.7 says, He became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And this is quite remarkable. And in this phrase, we see the glorious doctrine of the justification by faith alone. This phrase shows us that the Old Testament saints were imputed the righteousness of Christ retroactively when they believed, just as Christians today receive that same righteousness by faith alone. And this righteousness came through an inheritance, which means you cannot earn it. 
You can't earn it. We, we can't secure it. We can't do anything to get it. It, it. it comes only to his children. And Noah's faith was proved by his receiving God's righteousness, which was only bestowed on those who trust in him. He was the first person in Scripture to be called righteous. And though Noah was blameless, and, and it says that he walked with God, he was still a sinner. He was a fallen son of Adam. As seen so clearly and shamefully display of his drunkenness and immodesty when things began going well after the flood. He was saved because of God's grace, working through his faith. So application. So how, how do we apply this message? The three areas I want to quickly address. One, personally, two, family, and three, church. So personal faithfulness. Personal faithfulness is defined as to be utterly reliable, to be true to your word. We want to be called faithful in our life. So that means when we say we will do something or be somewhere, we need to follow through. You keep your word. I shared from last week, uh, Psalm 15, 4, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change his mind. Faithfulness and the life of a Christian will be hard when it comes to relationships that we have. And displaying the fruit of faithfulness means that sometimes we'll need to, to correct even the sinful behavior in the lives of others that we care for. The, the counterfeit of faithfulness is, is to be loving to other people, but not be truthful. So that you're never willing to confront or challenge them. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a faithful friend. So that's personal faithfulness. Second, family faithfulness. Ephesians 5 says that husbands are commanded to love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave his life for her and wives are told to submit to their husbands. Husbands should be faithful to their wives and wives should be faithful to their husbands. As Hebrews says, just a couple chapters later, 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We're to be faithful in our marriages. And, and, and the family and children are told in Ephesians 6 to obey, the, obey their parents in the Lord for this is right. Parents are told not to provoke their children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So friends, we need to be faithful in our families. Last, church faithfulness. Christians should be faithful to a church family, not only as members submitting to the elders, but serving and giving faithfully as the Lord leads them. And the writer of Hebrews says a few chapters later in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So faithfulness to a local church is best expressed by their obedience to the elders of that church. So let me conclude here. Friends, we always act according to our beliefs. You always act according to your real convictions. If you believe there's a bomb in your living room right now, you would run out of there. Alexander McLaren said, if faith has any reality in us at all, it works. 
but has no effect, it has no existence. And what God required of Noah to believe is far greater than what he asks of us. God required Noah to believe in something that had never happened before, something unprecedented and seemingly unlikely. And God asked you, friend, however, to believe things that have already happened, namely the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, things that were done not in a corner, but in the full light of history and recorded in the Bible. And similar, God promised to do something for Noah that was difficult to imagine. That is his, his salvation through the flood by entering in the ark. But God promises you something that he has done countless times before, probably in the lives of people you know. He promises to forgive your sins through faith in Christ, to give you his spirit, to lead you into new life of fruitfulness. And like Noah, we're saved by believing things that are unseen. And we please God only by believing his word and trusting in his promises. Peter Lewis says it well. Christ Jesus is our ark now. Big enough for the whole world, strong enough to withstand the shocks of life, the rising waters of death, and the upheavals of the last judgment. There is safety here in the Son of God, sent to be for us all the shelter, the salvation that we so desperately needed, our ark and safe passage into the new world God has planned. From that ark we will emerge to inherit a new heaven and a new earth. Friend, if you're listening this morning you have, and you've never turned to, to Jesus Christ in faith, God asks you that you believe and trust in him this morning. And God has provided everything you need in Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to trust in him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the faithfulness of your son, Jesus, who secured salvation for all those who believe. And thank you that we can trust in you for all of our life and everything. You are our rock, our, our cleft that we can hide under, no matter the trouble, no matter the pain, no matter the, the trials we face. And we know that you have us and protect us in all things. Help us to live faithfully for you in this world. Help us to live faithfully and to preach your gospel to our families and to our friends and to our neighbors and to ourselves. Help us to never grow weary of your goodness. And we thank you and praise you for this time. And may you use it in our lives. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.